We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Podcasting from the top of the rocks. This is News on the Rocks with Patty Steele. Well, today we are sipping as we begin News on the Rocks with... um, We started with Blackberry Vodka, and it sounds really creepy, but it actually wasn't. It's uh, it's a company called... Let's see. What is it? Core. And it, it actually is really good because it wasn't like remarkably sweet. It just has the essence of the, oh, black raspberry, sorry. And, um, but we didn't, we discovered very quickly that we have a lot of drinkers in the room and we ran out. So now we have moved on to um, some Patron Anejo uh, tequila, which is making all of us very happy. And uh, that's kind of how we get things going. You know, I've had a couple of conversations with you, Paul Barr, that have like really lit me up. Um, First time I heard of you and heard you was in some commercials that were running for your law firm in which you talked about how you represent um, people who were abused as children, sexually abused as children, whether it was by someone in a school, um, church, whatever it was. But the thing that really set you apart to me was that you had been through this yourself. And I thought, wow, you know, there's something, it's kind of like if you've had cancer, it's really great if the doctor can relate to you either because they've had something like that or they've had an, you know, some kind of an illness in which you feel like they feel what you're going through. And um, so I, we spoke at length one day and I just was, was, completely amazed at uh, the modesty with which you addressed what you've done and what you're doing now. So thank you for coming. Well, in. thank you. Thank you for having me here today. And you're welcome. Yeah, it was really amazing. I'm going to I'm going to kind of get everybody up to date uh, as to what um, Paul is all about. He's an attorney who started his adult life as a firefighter after after college. No, actually, sort of before, before college. college, yes. Okay. And during. Uh-huh. And then you went, you were a battalion chief. I know you won an award for heroism for rescuing a little boy from an apartment fire. Then you went on to get your college degree. You've got a master's in education. Yes, I do. Yeah. You taught at-risk students in Niagara Falls. And now you have a law degree. You've had a law degree for, what, 20 years 20 or so? 20 years, yes. Yeah, um, which led him to help victims of child sex abuse. And he knows that world really well because he himself was molested by a parish priest when he was just 16 years old. You are 
the definition of a renaissance <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, you are. It's really, you know, it's funny because I talked to you about this and you said, well, you know, you were kind of playing it down. You said, well, you know, I also make money from this. But to me, the greatest thing in the world is if you can make an income doing something that really helps other people. And that's what you've done all your life. Firefighter, you're an attorney who reaches out to people who have been victimized and you help them regain a sense of empowerment. And that's a that's an incredibly beautiful story. Can you tell us your story and where this began as as a kid? As a kid, I grew up in Niagara Falls, mm -hmm. New York, and I guess the very beginning of this is sort of autobiographical. The very beginning is I was adopted mm -hmm. into a, a working class family. My father was a factory worker. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother stayed at home. Yeah. And um, I went to public schools in Niagara Falls, but we were a Catholic family. My grandmother was the matriarch of the family and insisted that I attend mass every week. Mm -hmm. um, my parents did not regularly attend. Uh, right. My father wasn't Catholic. Right. My mother was a Christmas and Easter Catholic. Elapsed Catholic. Yeah, yeah, you, you, pretty yeah. much, yes. Yeah, yeah. But, but my grandmother would come and pick us up every Sunday morning, my brother and me. I had one brother, and we would go to Mass at Sacred Heart Church in Niagara Falls. So she was kind of your rock as far as your religious upbringing. She was the one making sure that we uh, were dotting our I's and crossing our T's and... and uh, making the sign of the cross. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, was was the, the, the Catholic part of us, but mm -hmm. it was really the core right. of, of, um, of our identity. Sure. It's not just a, not just a spiritual thing, but also a social and, and cultural kind of a thing. Yeah, we, we found reasons to be at, at our church frequently, whether it was for a social event. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother was, was, had so many friends there. Sure. So we, we were always attending something at church, whether it was a bingo or whatever <laughs> fun thing there was. Yeah, that dinners. Was and, yeah, 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 sure, I know. Sure. So I had some tragic events before my involvement with right. the priest that took advantage of me. Right. And um, I think that, that those events earlier are what this priest and other people like him Mm -hmm. can zero, they, they zero in on somebody. They see vulnerability. They do. Yeah. They do. And um, I have some clients who've been victimized numerous times, and it becomes almost implausible. Like, how could one person have had all these different people, they have all these different claims, and maybe three priests abuse them? Right. And my response is, it's simple. Yeah. Whatever the first priest saw, the second priest saw that plus... The fact that this guy was already now now further damaged, or this this girl was further damaged, and insecure and vulnerable, and not understanding what the role they played in it was. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So here I was at sixteen. Yeah. Um, you know, still still in a sense reeling over some some as I said earlier teenage events, mm -hmm. and um, this priest sees me coming to mass with my grandma. Yeah. And knows that my parents aren't really there, doesn't really care why, but just knows that I'm, I'm in the front row with grandma. And, There's some and, fragile uh, fingers there that he sees. That, yeah, and I'm hanging around after mass to ask him questions. Sure. I want to know a little bit about theology. I want to know a little bit about end-of-life stuff. Mm -hmm. And I want a mentor. 
So I stick around. I, I talk to this guy. And he, he says, "Popular you know, guy in the church." Well, you know, this particular priest was—I wouldn't describe him as that. Oh, really? He was no, a little more reserved. He wasn't so full of charisma. Oh wow! Um, like some of the others that I know, but right. because I was so hungry for something. Yeah, um, and he was there to answer those he, questions. He was there. Yeah, he was there, and he picked up on my my I, I guess vulnerability, fragility, and he invites me to. Hey, we're going to start a youth group. Let's start a youth group for <laughs> yeah. the kids who have already made their confirmations, mm-hmm. um, which we did in tenth grade. Right. And he, he says, you know, you're you're so athletic and good looking, mm-hmm. and the, the girls all like you, and everyone looks up to you. None of which was true. Um, <laughs> oh, I doubt that. You're well, gorgeous now. No, Why weren't you. you then? <laughs> no, no, none of us. But I wanted it to be true. I was. Yeah. I, I was. We all do. I right? know the feeling. Yeah. So that kind of flattery, you know, it puffs up your your, your peacock feathers. And yeah. he says, "Hey, why don't you come by? I want you to stop by the rectory, uh, and we'll talk this over." Okay. So cool. it's like, it'll be great. Yeah. So I I, re- I remember specifically, and this is this is kind of important. I remember convincing my mother that I I should be allowed to drive the car to to church, although I I didn't have my night license yet. <laughs> But I said, because it's church, Ma, though, they won't give me a ticket because you're allowed to drive to church, church and to work. Right. Um, so I, I, she's like, well, okay. I get there and I go in and, and he invites me in and he's happy to see me and hands me a beer. Huh. I'm 16. Yeah, so, you're a baby. Yeah, and I'm like, I don't think I'm a baby. I think I'm a big shot because I got yeah, a beer. Yeah, because you got a beer and, and it's okay because it's from a priest. Yeah, so I'm sure. drinking with Father Mike and not like today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, the, yeah. So um, we go in. We we sit. We start to talk and drinking this beer. And we he's he's the whole time flattering me, saying, "You know what sport do you do?" And you know, he's he's touching me like oh, feeling my arms, squeezing them. And mm-hmm. he says, uh, "No, you're a big, strong guy. You need to really be careful because you know athletes like you." Um, you can get injured. What sport do you play? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a wrestler. I'm going to be captain next year of, of the team. Wow. And I'm only a junior. Yeah. He says, wow, that's great. Well, you need to be careful because these injuries, you know, you could become sterile. Oh, my God. Here we go. And I'm like, well, okay. Because you know what that means? I said, yeah, I know what that means. Um, my, having been adopted, my mother couldn't have kids. And right. He says, well, you don't want that. You want children someday, right? I said, well, yeah, of course. He says, well, early detection, that's the important part. Oh, my God. Um, you know, as a military chaplain, he goes, I've got special training. I know how to detect these conditions. It's a simple thing. He goes, why don't you let me check you out? I said, I'm good. I'm good. No, thank you. <laughs> my mother will take me to the doctor. Right, right. He, and, and rather insistent, he stood up, he walks over, pushes my shoulders back, lays me onto the couch. Next thing you know. Yes. I'm being examined. My pants but not are, really. Oh no, I'm not really. My pants are around my knees, and and uh, you know instantly I knew bad touch. Right, was, right. And I panicked. I yeah. got up, um, and this was an old brownstone. Yeah. Rectory, and I remember. Oh, sounds creepy. It was creepy. <laughs> I remember grabbing the door to leave, and it was locked from the inside. <gasps> Holy crap. Um, sorry, <laughs> that's not holy crap. Wow, <laughs> sorry. So he, wow. he he reaches his pocket, he pulls out a skeleton key, and 
this is you know this is like a movie. Survivors have vivid recollections. It's like burned in your brain isn't of it? the weirdest details. Yeah, and when you, you say it sounds like a movie, I just watched again the movie Spotlight. Yeah, and oh. in, in the film, what a movie! One of the survivors is being interviewed, mm-hmm. and um, the survivor in that film recalls a, just a just a detail. Right. Not relevant to what happened, but just a detail. And I looked at my wife and I go, that's what they do. That's what we do. We all remember certain that moment. details that aren't relevant to what was happening, but it's burned into your brain. And I remember the skeleton key. And he let me leave. Um, he opened the door, obviously. Right. Me, what did he say to you? He just said very calmly, which was creepy, very mm-hmm. calmly. He says, you can go. It's okay. And he patted me on the shoulder, and I scurried out. And I went home. Mm-hmm. Immediately, I told my mother. Right. Oh, well, that's good that you felt comfortable to at least tell her. Well, yes and no, because her response to me was, how could you be so naive? <laughs> oh. And I think of my own sons, and I want to hug you because I feel <laughs> I understand that, that, that innocence. You look like a man, but you're not a man at that age. Right. At 16, you're certainly you're a baby. You're still a child. Yeah. Um, and she said, don't tell dad because God knows what he might do, and right. we need him right. to of provide course. for our family. Right. So basically, don't tell anybody. Oh, that's um, so damaging. We know that now. Maybe we didn't know it then as well, but... Well... So what happened then? So I didn't tell anybody. She said I didn't have to go to church for a while. For a while. So I didn't go to church for a What'd while. What'd you tell your grandmother? I didn't tell her anything. I didn't tell anybody else anything. Yeah. And she um, was okay with you not going? Um, yeah. I don't know what she told her. Right. You're right. Oh, yeah. There's... I don't know... The what, backstory. <laughs> um, but it was left there. Yeah. Um, but the tragedy of this, besides that part of it and how it affected my relationship with my mother, right, sure. um, the tragedy is within weeks, weeks, the very summer, mm-hmm. my wrestling coach invites me over and tells me I need to be in shape and work out. And um, He sees the vulnerability too. I, I mean, know. these are predators who look at children and find that vulnerable child. That's right. And he, he had already... He had already been, you know, in, uh, grooming, as they say. Right. He would, he would drive me home for practice. He didn't know the priest at all. Didn't know the priest. No relationship. It was. It was. It, you would call it a coincidence. He saw the same gentleness, the same vulnerability, and thought he could take advantage. And and he tried and mm-hmm. and brought, invited me over. And long story short, pinned me down and tried to molest me. Right. Um, Fortunately for me, at that moment, he was drunk enough that I could fight him off. Right, um, and you were a wrestler. So I think I, I think I have. I think he half let me go All right. because he was a very talented athlete. Yeah, um, but I got away, and right. he convinced me not to tell anybody. Right? Did he threaten you, or did no, he? No, just... he convinced me because he he more he, he appealed to my um, my um, liberal team spirit. Yeah, team spirit. I got you, maybe, yeah. and my liberal. Um, ideology right, that right. I did, couldn't have explained then, but he knew that I would keep a secret. I, right. I was, I, I didn't care about what his, you know, he, he said, I wouldn't have done this if, if, if I, th- I only did it because I thought you wanted me to. Yeah. And please understand. Of course, blame the, blame the victim as yeah, opposed right? to taking responsibility for yourself and your, wow. So I, I kept his secret, but, um, what happened to him? 
he molested more children wow. and went to prison wow. and wow. died in prison. Wow. Um, and as I grew older, that's what motivated me to report the priest yeah. because I felt so guilty that I hadn't reported the coach. I did not have the courage as a, as a young person yeah, right, right. to report that, that coach. Right. And I felt guilty because I thought I could have prevented some of these other victims. It's a really interesting part of the psychology of being victimized by people. And and we're going through that now with like the Harvey Weinstein case and other people say, well, why didn't you do blah, blah, blah. There is a part of being victimized that makes you feel so weak that you you don't know how to, especially if somebody's more powerful. He was the coach. He was the priest. He was the movie producer. They seem to have so much more power than you have and so that's part of it and part of it is that there is a little crazy place inside of you that says what role did i play in this maybe i did something wrong yeah and, and you wonder until you're Old an, an adult yeah. you wonder what was it about me right that, that attracted that sort of attention why me? And it's, it's just, you know, it's just your beauty and your innocence and your, your, I mean, you, you still, I mean, it's many, many years later, but you are still a very lovely person. And so they see that there are people who I think who see that as a vulnerability, as opposed to something to love and celebrate and protect. They see it as a way in, you know? Well, you don't feel that way. And even, no, of course even, not. And even as you identify as an adult you know, you 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 know being described as lovely is embarrassing because oh i i certainly didn't mean it that way <laughs> no but because it's, well it's 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 tragic but you feel the opposite you feel ugly you feel tarnished you feel but but loveliness is um to me the ultimate strength because when you have the ability to share a story and to share your vulnerability, that's the ultimate strength. The people who are unable to share their vulnerabilities are not strong people because they're afraid. So to me, and that's what I was trying to tell you in the very first phone conversation we had, the beauty of what of the story you tell and how you're using it now to help other people who've been through this is the ultimate strength because you're not saying I need to hide something. Hiding is weakness. Stepping out and sharing is the ultimate strength. And to me, that is loveliness. Loveliness is, is a, is, is such a beautiful thing in an individual. And, and to me, how you have processed what you went through, is is equally lovely and equally strong. That's a beautiful thing, and you should embrace it that way. Well, I know it's hard. Well, it, but interesting. What's what's been really fascinating for me right now is the, is this process. This is a process for me because and I, it still is. It will be your whole life probably. I've I've I have literally hundreds of hours interviewing survivors. Right. That met, most of whom are now my clients. Right. Um, and initially this took a toll on me as we, you know, started to undertake this, this type of case, right. Case log. Cause you're hearing things that happened to you. Yeah. But then, you know, gradually it occurred to me that these stories weren't about me mm -hmm. and I was more involved in experiencing people 
is they took back their power. Yes. And um, I've been an open book with my clients as Mm -hmm. I am today. I've shared my story. Right. Um, But I have also been sharing um, my experience sort of of transition, my therapy, Mm -hmm. um, uh, what I do to um, soothe myself, my my spiritual journey. and one thing that is a recent experience that's mm-hmm. been just compelling for me, right. um, through my therapy, I have begun to see myself as the man I am mm-hmm. and see the world from through the eyes of this man that I've become and not the little boy that was victimized. Right. And as I do this, I can imagine the little boy. Right. And I, I, I imagine the little boy, and I can see him the way I would see my own children. I can, I can. You want to put your arms around? I him. yes. I know I, that feeling. I, I, I know that feeling. And, and, you know, you know, sports heroes speak of themselves in the third person, right. and they say, you know, Paul Barr, this and what. Right. But it's it's a lot like that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can I can smell that little boy's hair. I can oh, I can oh feel God. his cheeks in my hands, yeah. oh. and I can feel his pain. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty intense. I got to tell you, I and I and I so get it. And that is, I think, what makes you such a remarkable person and such a remarkable advocate for people who have been victimized. It's interesting to me because I look back at what you've done in your life and you first became a firefighter. You have some pretty remarkable stories to tell. And um, a mutual friend of ours, Dave, who's here in the room with us, Dave Flotkin, um, told me the story about how you had gone in um, as a firefighter to rescue some um, children in, in, in a fire and then and got them out. And then you went back in during the investigation and you noticed these little handprints on the wall charcoal sort of handprints from tiny hands trying to find their way out of that building. And I thought, what a remarkable person that you would have even noticed that. Because most people will go in and they're going to do their job to investigate. How did this fire start? How did... And so I, I kind of felt as I thought about you and this, that even at that time in your life, that younger period before you did the whole law journey and teaching and all the other stuff, that you were constantly looking at and I don't like to the the term victim is kind of a um, it has a lot of different weird little fingers to it because I like to think of us of all of us if we go through difficult times that we have the ability not just to survive but to thrive in the aftermath but it's pretty clear that you took on all kinds of jobs that allowed you to help people and it was like you were looking for a way to help people because you hadn't been helped in that time in your life. Yeah, I, I, um, and maybe you didn't process it that way. Well, you know, these events in my life, they, they set you on a trajectory Yeah, and you find yourself in a position where you can only do the next thing. Right. So the next thing after the, the, the priest and the coach was, Mm -hmm. um, I, I was still, you know, really, really yearning for mentorship. I was yearning for um, some kind of spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And we um, got a new priest and a new youth group director. Okay. Um, long story longer, um, it turns out that 
both of them are notoriously accused of being pedophiles. Oh my God. <laughs> oh um, my gosh. Um, How does that happen? And, and this is all within the same parish. Right. The, 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 the priest I'm talking about um, has been reported on wildly in the media and is on the list and there are numerous victims of his. And the youth group director, there's a website about this youth director who both of them were so full of charisma. Right. And um, they exploited that charisma. They were the ones, not like the one, the priest Joey that we talked about. A little about. quieter, yeah. Yeah, but these two were, the, were just what you would expect. They Sparkling. were Sparkling. And you couldn't help but to be attracted to them. Right. Um, and the youth group director took me under his wing, made me his right-hand man. We were like Gilligan and the Skipper. <laughs> Um, <laughs> wow, don't go there. <laughs> yeah. Don't wreck that show for me. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, he, he, he um, we, we became something of a cult. Right. The way we behaved, the way he um, communicated with us. Sure. And he gave me an inside look at what how pedophiles view the world because he was a man who communicated with children as their equal. As his equal. Right, right. And he Which treated is very me. very attractive to kids. Sure. Did, did he try to go after you? He never did. Okay, good. But, but strangely, he would confide in me. Mm -hmm. He shared with me <gasps> what his attractions were. And um, asked me to pray for him and with him about this. Was he looking for a response from you to see if you were interested? I think he was more looking for someone to justify right, what right. he was doing because he was attracted to young girls, little girls. Oh, okay. Children. Okay. But he would share this with me and, and I think he wanted me to say that I had yeah, I get similar. It. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that he he liked to have something on you. Yeah. So if he had something on you, he yeah, could keep yeah, you yeah. quiet. Right. Um so that that was his MO. And wow. he stayed involved with children for many years. And I've said many times that if the only reason I became an attorney mm -hmm. was to keep him alone away from children, then right. it would have been worth all right. the work I did. One of the things I want to bring up, because I think it's really fascinating, is that, um, and I have spoken with people who had been abused as as teens um, in a in the uh, in one person in particular who was abused um, at a Catholic girls boarding school um, and a terrific person, but um, she had such distaste and such um, hatred for the Catholic church and for the fact that um, both the school and her family had basically um, shunned her in the aftermath of her being attacked by a teacher at the school who, as it turned out, had attacked many other kids. Um, and the interesting thing to me is that you are still lovingly Catholic. Yes. And I use the, I, I like to say that I'm Catholic with a small C. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still a member You're of realistic the about it. I'm, I'm, I'm the Catholic church is the, is the term Catholic means universal. Right. Um, sure. But the institutional church, mm -hmm. the capital C church, right. they're not making it easy no. um, with their secrets right. and um, all the many, many ways they have hidden atrocity. Right. Um, 
the woman you described. Right. It's understandable to shun what has damaged you so much. Yes. Um, I, I have a very difficult time attending mass mm-hmm. because I, I see the priest like anyone else does. I see right. him. I see him as somebody who is complicit. Mm-hmm. Because if he didn't do it, he at least had to have known. He's supporting an institution that has tried to push it under the rug for centuries. Yes, and I've had this conversation with priests um, who I know quite well, and I've said, I know that you know where the bodies are buried. Can the, can the church survive this, and how would they? The church can survive, and the, the church has survived so much. Right. The church deals in centuries, yeah. not months and years. And decades, yeah. So they're playing the long game. Right. Um, they're looking down the road to when we're all dead and gone, mm-hmm. and, and the church will still be here. They survived the Inquisition. Yes. They survived so much. Right. So, um, wars, any number of things, right? Yeah. So they'll survive this. <laughs> I wish I could say that it would it was it would survive for its mission of love. Mm-hmm. I like to think that, right? Um, because in the big picture, that's what it's supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you're Christian or not, the message of Christ is a message of love. Right. And I look to that and message. And, yeah. I look to that message and I try to look beyond the individuals running the institution. Right. Especially when those individuals are sitting across from me, lying to me. Yeah. Yeah. Do you f- still find spiritual inspiration through the church? I find spiritual inspiration through the theology. Right. That I can read. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm going to oversimplify this, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's, it's not unlike um, our favorite comedians or our favorite musicians that entertain us. Right. But whose personal lives have damaged so many people. Right. Can I still laugh at those jokes? Can I still appreciate the good things that some of those people have done for their communities? Right. Um, not to say we should ignore the harm that those individuals have done, but it doesn't negate the good things that they did. Right. Do they, we throw it all away? That's right. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think, um, you know, you can you can look at everybody from a Harvey Weinstein to a to a Bill Cosby and say, you know, they produced so many incredible films and television shows and moments to celebrate um, the beauty and the humor in life. Do we just shut it off and say we'll never look at any of that again, or do we say? Okay, we realize, you know, and even on a larger sense, I'm a huge history fan. And I am always fascinated by how we deconstruct these days our historic figures. You know, we, for decades, centuries, we have looked at, say, the founding fathers as the statues that we see them as. And now, you know, as we begin to understand their history and who they were as as fallible human beings, we see their downside. We see the, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson and and Alexander Hamilton and all of sort of the craziness of their personal lives. And um, but do we just let go of what they created and what they gave us? I, you know, that's a hard question. 
You know, these are people that created what we call democracy, mm -hmm. but they're also people that um, for human promoted um, one of the most horrific institutions, slavery, right. and what that all was. And it wasn't democracy for everyone, no. um, but their concepts and what people fought and died and still people fight and die for um, are both real. Yeah, and that's that's what we have to have to really understand is that a lot of we haven't talked about this, but a lot of the people that I meet with mm -hmm. have been abused by people in their own families. Yeah, and Christmas still comes, Thanksgiving still comes, and they still attend these they're events. Around the table together, and they're you know across from them are the very people who abuse them. They attend funerals together. What do you think about that? What do you tell them when they come to you and they say, I feel like a hypocrite because I sit on the other side of the turkey, you know, from this person that has done this to me? What can you say to them? Because you know, you feel what that means because um, on some level you had to continue. Maybe you didn't go to church right away, but you still went back at some point. What do you, what do you tell them? How do you tell them to deal with that part of it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I, the, <laughs> I, the, I understand. The, the answers, I don't know what I tell them. You know, I, I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the first person in my family to have attended college. So I'm the person who is asked to deliver the eulogy at most of the funerals and I have had to stand up and find something positive to say uh, about people that I love but who hurt me deeply failings. as a child right and you know that there are moments and there are moments right so we pick our moments yeah and I say, protect yourself. Mm -hmm. I say, you you own this story. So you tell your story where and when and to whom you want to. Right. It's your story. That's what I tell them. And that moment when they are able to stand up and face either the individual or the institution in court and say, this is what happened to me. And you need to some on some very insignificant level make some kind of a restitution that must empower them on some level maybe not completely maybe there's a lot of other healing that needs to take place i think just knowing that they own that story right uh, i heard i heard i heard a story about a woman who at her father's wake mm -hmm. as they greeted the people who came through the line you know, I'm sorry for your loss. And the woman's response was, my father molested me to every person. Wow. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's the right or the wrong or she the what thing. But that her, was needed that, that was her story. Yeah. She owned it. And there's no follow up to that. That you know, is, because it is her story. Yeah. So, um, wow. Did she say that that made her feel... <sighs> better i don't know i mean I, I, there's a there are a million family dynamics that go with that and that's why everyone your hair goes back when you hear that yeah um and i don't know what the fallout was i don't know if she regrets having done it but were you, were you ever able to um speak to your mother about what 
you know, because I'm sure that you loved her and she loved you. Were you ever able to address what happened and and her follow up? No, my mother died when I was when she was 50. Oh, and I was 24. So yeah, that discussion wouldn't have taken place that quickly. Yeah, no, she she passed very young. And my father, who, who lived until he was 75, mm-hmm. but never knew any of this. Never? Uh, never even until never, he died? Okay. No, never knew. Okay. Um, and, you know, he, he, my father did not have the complexity, I don't think, to really digest this. Right, right. So I didn't, I didn't burden him with it. Right. For good or bad, I don't know, because he's been gone 10 years. I've had 10 more years to, to wonder what kind of conversation we'd be having today if he were still here. I have to, I have to say... Um, I know you say you were adopted. It begs the question, where did you come from? Have you ever looked into that? <laughs> I have very, yes, um, the, which which could be the uh, subject for two more podcasts. Right, yeah. Um, but I did, I did find my birth mother uh-huh. when I was 24. Right. I found my birth mother. I found some records after my adopted, my mom died. Right. We, we call it, you know, your, your mom's your mom. That's yeah. who raised you, right? right. right. So my mom passed and um, I found some records and I found my original birth certificate. And before the computers were made things easy, I was yeah. able to go to the library and yeah, look, look it up. obituaries. And yeah. uh, it took several months, but I tracked her down. We arranged to meet. When we did, we had this conversation. It says, you know, you're, you're a grandmother. Mm-hmm. I said, I have two daughters. Then I had two daughters. I have four children now. But at the time, I had two daughters. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, one, one is only a couple months old, and the other one is three. And she said, oh, well, the, the, your new daughter, when, when's her birthday? And it was December 4th. Mm-hmm. She goes, interesting. She goes, you know, my niece was born December. Her niece mm-hmm. from the other side of the family was born, right. was born December 3rd. And we talked about hospital, and they were born in the same hospital. Wow. Same year? Same, yeah, a, a wow. day apart. So then as we're talking, her eyes got really big and she goes, oh my God. She goes, we met. I was in the hospital visiting my niece and we were together standing at the glass looking at the babies. And it was the day my daughter, her granddaughter was born. Wow. And we were talking and she goes, I remember they both had reddish hair. and The universe she, put you together. She saw her granddaughter. Um, the day she was born. Wow. And she recalled it and wow. she remembered me. Yeah. Yeah. How fascinating is that? I, I, and that's the Did term you stay in touch with her? Or for, yeah, for, te- for 10-ish years before she passed. She, okay. she, another of my relatives who died young. And she told me who she thought the father was. Turns out now in the, in the, in the age of Ancestry.com, right, exactly. um, I learned that the person I thought was my biological father was not. Wow. Um, and I'm able to, I was able to learn. Who he is. Who he is or was. and, and right. uh, Well, is he, he's gone. He's gone too. Uh-huh. So, yeah, all of my next generation relatives have passed. Is that sa- satisfying to you to know, at least know who they were? Very much so. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, Niagara Falls is a sort of microcosm of New York. Yeah. yeah. And it's um, very ethnic. Yeah. Um, and I learned that I'm 50% European Jewish, mm-hmm. um, which which I know very little of, right. and um, right. I've been reading constantly ever since. You were and a good Catholic boy. So. I was a good Catholic boy. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. I'm, I'm learning a lot about um, what what that means, and, and it's just fascinating. And 
It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you, you really see all is. the colors. And, wow. What a story. You're a movie. <laughs> You're a book. You really are. You really, because, you know, and I said this to you the first time I spoke with you, the beauty of who you are is that you took all of these experiences and you turned them into positives. You became a firefighter who, who rescued people. You became a teacher who taught children who were at risk. What you say, it says children at risk in your bio. What, what does that mean? Well, I became a firefighter when I was 22. Mm-hmm. I, I was married when I was 20, and it mm-hmm. was kind of as the result of the cult that we talked about. Sure, sure. My then wife and I were having our first child and realized that we weren't playing house, that this was real. Right. Yeah. Um, it's very young. And then I needed a job. Right. Um, so I became a firefighter. Right. And um, I didn't realize how much I'd love doing that until yeah. I was there. Right. But I also learned uh, that there was such an opportunity to do other things while you're a firefighter because there's time. Right. There's the way the shifts work mm-hmm. and the time you spend in the firehouse, you can study. Right. Um, you're not a couch potato type, I guess. No, and I right <laughs> away I immersed myself in, in collecting uh, credentials. Wow. And I got my bachelor's degree in, in teaching mm-hmm. and I began working with students, as, as they say, at risk. But I actually described them in, in an application to law school as um, not at risk because whatever they were at risk for right. had happened to them. Right. <laughs> right. I so mean, was, <laughs> These were children that, right. that I learned some, some of them. They faced risk. Well, they were homeless. <laughs> yeah. I had children that were homeless. I had children um, who brought weapons to school. I was threatened with weapons several I'm times. Sure, because they don't, that's their life. That's what they know. Yes. And they were the students who, who were, who were not allowed on school property. Right. And um, because of their violent behavior at school. And, you know, I found, we found, I had a partner, another firefighter who who worked the opposite shift. So we would more or less pass in the hall at both jobs. Right, right. And we found a way to work with with these these kids Mm -hmm. that... um, it wasn't all academic. It was it was a lot of different things. Mentoring, sort of helping yeah, them we, figure out. We sent a kid to summer camp. Yeah. Um, all these years later, some of them are still in touch with me. Oh. You know, they, yeah, sure. A couple get out of jail now and then and drop in to see me. <laughs> everybody's everybody's looking for strength. They're looking for a rock in their lives. We all are. We all need somebody who makes us feel like okay. Whatever I'm going through, it's going to be okay. And so you provided that for them. And, and you do for your clients now who have faced what they've faced and are just looking for some sense of, you know what, I can, I can regain my strength. I can come back from this at least to a certain extent. Yeah, and you're, you're taking me back to that, that man that can talk to that little boy that was me all those years ago. And it takes me to the rage I feel at my church that's supposed to be that. Right. They're supposed to be the rock. They're supposed to be. That's what, that's what Jesus said to Peter. Exactly. We are the, I am the rock. You are the rock upon whom I will build my church. Well, it's the the church is not behaving like a rock, like the rock. I, 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 I vacillate, you know, between rage. You are. 
you are providing a rock for people. You may not see it that way exactly, but um, you know, you're providing a solid place for people to say, okay, in this little area, I can begin to regain my sense of strength and my ability to look forward to my life in a way that I can respond to what people have, you know, people or institutions have done to me and say, this isn't right. I'm going to take this back. I'm going to take my strength back. So you're giving them that. So, you know, God bless you. Thank you. Yeah. I I was asked by by a reporter recently, do you have to have been a survivor of this sort of thing in order to, to connect with people and to represent them. And I, 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 I said, no, mm. you don't have to. I said, I'm the right person for a lot of people that I've met. Um, but what's important is that they, people f- find the right person. That they reach out and say, I'm going to take this back. You don't have to. You don't have to. You know, I, have a, I have a terrific therapist, and he says to me sometimes, I, I asked him, how do you do this day in and day out? I have asked my therapist the same thing. How do you listen to these? I don't know how you do that. I want to I hold you. I feel bad for you. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and I said, you know, I'm triggered sometimes by the things my clients say to sure, me. Sure, of course you are. And, and he says, well, he said, well, I'm not. He said, I had a happy childhood. I didn't have all these experiences that you've described in your life. So I can hear. Can compartmentalize your, it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I may not be the right person for everybody, right. but if people hear either the radio ad that I have or this conversation mm-hmm. and it inspires them to, if not reach out to me, reach out to somebody right. and take back their powers, the, the expression we keep using, then then this is all worthwhile and it's all good stuff that we're oh, doing. Oh, it's all worthwhile. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Because you touch people and you help them, um, and, and we talked about this, go from being a survivor to being a thriver, which you have, clearly. And that doesn't mean that the job is done. It just means that the trajectory is towards thriving, towards reclaiming the things that somebody tried to take away from you or them. You know, what more can we ask for? That's what life is all about. It's a continual learning process, you know. Yeah. Bless your heart. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank oh, you very much. Wonderful. And I am going to hug you. <laughs> <laughs> we really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. 